Well, this is one of those mornings that is bittersweet, because this morning we bring to a conclusion our study of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. If you've been with us for any length of time, you'll know that we have been walking through uh, these three chapters, best known as the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, coming off of the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been teaching expositionally through this text. That means verse by verse, section by section, seeking to expound upon it, to shed light upon Jesus' words. Not that we would just be hearers of the word or that we would have inflated minds, that we would just have theoretical information, but that we would apply it, that we would be doers of the word. We don't want to be like the man that James speaks about in James chapter 1 who looks intently at the law of the Lord and then walks away and quickly forgets it because that man is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and then goes away and quickly forgets what he looks like. Instead, we want to be doers of the word. We want to hear the authoritative, sufficient words of the Lord Jesus Christ and by his grace we want to put them into practice. We want to employ them. We come to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus doesn't have any words here in our text this morning. Jesus doesn't speak in verses 28 and 29, explicitly that is. Of course, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed, that it's useful for our teaching, correcting, training, and righteousness, that every man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Jesus is speaking, but these aren't words written in red. This is Matthew. Matthew is commentating now on what is taking place at the conclusion of Jesus' sermon. As, as Matthew takes a step back and he just looks on at the crowd, he's writing about their response. He's writing about their reaction to Jesus' words. That's where we pick up this morning in our text, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Let me encourage you to stand this morning as we read God's word together. This is Matthew writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, this is what he says. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds or the multitudes were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Brothers and sisters, Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may take a seat. The last two verses here in front of us this morning of the Sermon on the Mount tell us about the effect that Jesus' words had on his original hearers. Undoubtedly, reading these words should have the exact same effect on us, his hearers, today. These words should have the exact same effect on all who reflect on their profound meaning, on the profound meaning of Jesus' words. You see, verses 28 and 29 direct our attention not to the content of the sermon, but rather to the character of the preacher. What is it about this man? Who is this man? Is the question they were asking. Who is he? We've not seen anything like him before. We've not heard words like this before. We've seen our rabbis, we've heard our rabbis teach. 
We know what the scribes have written, but we've not seen anything like this. Who is this man? Who is this man? John writes, or Matthew writes rather, when Jesus finished these sayings, look at your Bible there. The word translated finished, it's the Greek word teleo, to finish something. It means to complete something or to bring something to its termination, its conclusion, to bring something to its end. Finished is an accurate translation. When Jesus finished saying these things, but the idea behind the word is much more specific because the idea behind the word teleo isn't just merely that the Sermon on the Mount had come to its conclusion or had been brought to its conclusion, but that it had been brought to its perfected end, its designed goal. It wasn't just that Jesus had finished speaking, period, end of sentence, as if he didn't have anything else to say. It's that Jesus' words, the Sermon on the Mount, had reached its intended goal. The idea is to achieve a goal or to conclude it successfully. And it's interesting to note that the same word, finished, teleo, is used in John chapter 19, verse 30, where Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished. It is finished. In other words, the reason that he had come, the work which he had come to accomplish, had, had, accomplished, had reached its intended goal. It's finished finished. It had been brought to perfection and accomplished. The final two verses of the Sermon on the Mount, which speak to the response of the crowd, both fascinate me and break my heart all at the same time. When Jesus finished his sermon, which was probably delivered over a three-day period, by the way, this wasn't just a, a short sitting here. Jesus probably delivered this message over a multiple-day period, potentially even multiple sittings, obviously, over three days. And the crowds that were said to have followed him for a short period of time are presumed to just go home at the end of the message. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes, and the text just kind of assumes that everyone who was there, everyone who had gathered there on the mountainside to hear Jesus preach, just kind of filed back to their own homes and to their own lives. Though the whole intention of the Sermon on the Mount was to expose the hearts of the hearers and to lead them to Jesus as their only hope of righteousness, the crowd seemed momentarily excited. That excitement didn't seem to last very long. It's interesting to note here that Jesus didn't give an altar call after his sermon but there was one individual who came. There was one individual who came forward. If you let your eyes just glance forward there into Matthew chapter 8, John tells us that out of the mass of people who assembled on the mountainside to listen to him, a single leper who would have known well his place in society, he would have known well that he was an outcast, came and knelt before Jesus and asked of him. Look at verses 2 and 3, chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. What a picture. What a picture of the spiritual reality that Jesus had just been communicating 
in his sermon? Do you see, friends, that for three chapters now, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what Jesus has been laboring to do is to expose the spiritual leprosy that exists in the heart of every man and woman without exception. We're born that way. We're born into sin, born fallen, marred by the effects of the fall. The very first person that Jesus interacts with after this sermon is a great picture of the reality, the spiritual reality of those whom were sitting there on the mountainside. The very thing that Jesus was trying to expose in their hearts is their self-righteousness. You see, sin is like spiritual leprosy. Leprosy is a bacterial infection that causes, among other things, a, a desensitization, or desensitization, you know what I mean. We'll just not go for a third time on that one. Causes the nerves to be desensitized, among other things. And people would oftentimes die as a result of secondary injury or infection that they couldn't even feel. That's the thing that Jesus is exposing here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's coming to these individuals, sharing these words, saying, you have a spiritual sickness, you have an illness that you're not even aware of. That you're not even aware of. It's called sin. It's infectious. And it kills the nerves such that you can't even see how insidious that it really is. You see, sin desensitizes us to our need for a savior. Jesus was communicating, you have no hope apart from me. All your self-achievement, all your striving, all your trying is to no avail. It's in vain apart from me because the standard of the law, Matthew 5, 48, is that you be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I mean, friends, not a one of us hits the mark. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, what Jesus has been laboring to communicate is that we, apart from him, have not a shred of hope. No hope. No hope. Lest Jesus step in and stand in our place as our righteousness. Unless he becomes our sacrificial substitute, his perfect life credited to our otherwise bankrupt account, our sin paid for by death, if you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. Unless I step in your place and die the death reserved for you and bear the cup reserved for you and drink the wrath down to the dregs reserved for you, you have no hope. You must be perfect. I mean, this wasn't any ordinary teaching. This wasn't what the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching. This wasn't what the rabbis of Jesus' day were teaching. Jesus' message was altogether authoritative. And new. There was at least a temporary response from the crowd as they dispersed. It calls for our attention. Matthew writes that after hearing Jesus' sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching with one who had authority. Two words stand out to me from our text this morning. It's the word astonished. Perhaps your translation says amazed. 
and the word authority. The word astonished or amazed and authority. Friends, I would submit to you that these are two ingredients that are missing from many of our churches today. An astonishment, an amazement over the authority of God's word. That we would stand before it and tremble at his word. Let's look first here, if you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so, at the crowd's response. The crowd's response, Matthew tells us, was amazement. Jesus left the crowds in amazement wherever he went. Interesting, in John chapter 7, Jesus stood up on the last day of the feast, on that great day, and he cried out. These will be some familiar words to you. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If you thirst, of course, Jesus is talking spiritually here, not like I need a glass of water. If you thirst spiritually, then come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. And then Jesus goes on to write that some of the crowd began to say, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among them. So Jesus just said, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And there'll be fountains of living water that will flow up. And here the crowd begins to go back and forth. Who, who is this guy? Is he a prophet? Did he come from Galilee? Did he come from Jerusalem? Now wait a second, who is this man that's saying these things? So there was division among the people over him. Some people wanted to arrest him, but no one laid their hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to him, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever has spoken like this man. No one has ever said the types of things that this man is saying. What is he speaking about? If you come to me and drink, then the springs of living water will bubble forth. No one has ever spoken like this. Jesus left crowds amazed often. Almost everywhere he went, there's some sort of reaction that can be described in terms of amazement or awe or perplexed or dumbfounded or confused. People were wondering, who is this man? Who is he? The word amazed there in your Bible it's a compound word in the original language. It's the word expleso. Ek means out, and pleso means to strike. It has the idea of striking out. Figuratively, it means to drive one's senses out. It means to be, to be put in sudden shock or to have a strong feeling or to be struck in the mind, to be amazed. It means to cause one to be filled with wonder to the point of being overwhelmed, to being struck out of your senses. It encompasses the idea of wonder. It expresses a stunned amazement that leaves the subject unable to even grasp what is happening. It leaves the person saying, wow, wow, who is this man? Some versions I study and preach and teach from the English Standard Version render this word astonished, which is a good translation. You may have amazed, you may have astonished. Both great translations. 
It's interesting to note that our English word astonish is derived from the Latin word extonere. It means to thunder forth or to strike with thunder. What a picture of Jesus' radical message here in the Sermon on the Mount. That it struck his hearers like thunder. They were amazed. They were awestruck. They were astonished. John MacArthur notes this. He said, The crowds had never heard such comprehensive words, such insightful words, such words of wisdom with depth and insight and profundity. They had never heard such straightforward and fearless denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, Jesus fearlessly went toe-to-toe, contended with, Their scribes and their Pharisees. The religious authorities of the day. Jesus took them to task over their interpretation of the scripture. Or such a black and white presentation of the way of salvation. They had never heard such a fearful warning of the consequences of turning away from God. They had never heard such a powerful and demanding description of true righteousness Such a relentless description and condemnation of self-righteousness as came forth in Jesus' words. We've never heard anything like this. Who, Who is this that speaks with such authority? I think what Jesus left his hearers with, astonishment here, may even be potentially a bit of an understatement. I mean, they were blown away at what they heard. Let's look at some of the characteristics of Jesus' teaching here. Write this down if you're taking notes. Jesus taught, the text tells us very clearly, with authority. He taught with authority. Authority is the Greek word exousia. It's used about 130 times or so in the New Testament, and it almost always speaks of the power that proves and reflects the sovereignty of Jesus. Almost every time you see that word authority, it speaks to the power which proves the sufficiency and the sovereignty and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this word in the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, you Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. But you need to know that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus cleanses a man of an unclean spirit. And the response of those looking on is, what is this? A new teaching with authority because Jesus commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. What is this authority by which this man speaks, they ask? Or how about the paralytic in Mark chapter 2? Remember, some some friends bring their, their paralyzed buddy to Jesus. And what does Jesus do first? Does he heal the, the, the man of his, of his paralysis? No, he looks at him and he says, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And people are like, what? On what authority do you have to forgive this man's sins? And Jesus says, I'll demonstrate the authority. Brother, get up and walk. So that you know what authority the Son of Man has to forgive sin. 
How about Jesus in his high priestly prayer, John 17, just hours before his crucifixion? When Jesus had spoken these words, John writes, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. Authority. Sovereign authority. Jesus' authority is contested in the age that we're in today. But there is coming a day, friends, when Jesus' authority will be contested no more. That day where every knee hits the deck, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus spoke like no one ever spoke. He taught with authority. Write this down if you're taking notes. We see Jesus' authority as the teacher. We see Jesus' authority as the teacher. Matthew tells us that Jesus taught not as their scribes taught. It's interesting to note that Jesus had no formal training in schools. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a scribe. He hadn't been sitting at the feet of Gamaliel or any of the great authorities or teachers of his day, yet there was something about his teaching that was so profoundly different than what they were accustomed to hearing. The characteristic of the scribes and Pharisees' teaching was that they often exclusively quoted other religious authorities. They would oftentimes go back and they would say, well, such and such said. That's how the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis of Jesus' day would teach. They would appeal to the teaching of those who had gone before them. So-and-so said, you know, some some high-profile teacher, some other high-profile rabbi, this is what he has said, and that's what they would teach. That's what they would communicate. They were experts not so much in the law itself, but rather in various expositions and interpretations of the law that had come down the line. And they were very proud of their educated status, very proud of what they knew On multiple occasions, they dismissed Jesus, saying, how is it that this man has any learning when he's never studied? I mean, who who does he think he is? He's, He's never studied. He's never been to school. Turn over in your Bibles for just a second to John chapter 7. I want to show it to you. I love that sound, by the way. Just listen to that. The sound of Bible pages turning. It's beautiful. Look at John chapter 7. Look at verses 14 through 19. About the middle of the feast, that's the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, there's a reaction again, marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority speaks his own glory. 
But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. He has not Moses, or has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. I mean, here you go. The learned, the educated of Jesus' day looking at him saying, who's this guy? He's not been to school. He he doesn't have a degree. He doesn't have an MDiv. He doesn't have a THM. He doesn't have his doctorate. Who, Who is he? You see, the scribes and the Pharisees taught by the authority of others, but Jesus, on the other hand, taught with one who had authority. There's a major difference. The religious leaders of Jesus' day taught by the authority of someone else. Jesus came and he said, I am the authority. I am the authority. Think about the frequency in chapter 5, for instance, if you uh, go back to Matthew 5 there, that Jesus says, you have heard that it was said... But I say to you, you see, Jesus never hesitated to correct the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees or their religious authorities, which is exactly what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it said, let me correct your interpretation, for I say to you, standing on my own authority. Neither did Jesus hesitate to assert that he alone was able to give spiritual interpretation to the law that was given through Moses. His whole argument was that the religious authorities were misrepresenting the law and reducing it to the mere physical level. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do this. Do that. And Jesus comes and he drills down into the heart like a big oil rig, just drilling down into the heart. And he says, no, the issue here is obedience that springs from the heart. It's not just what do you do or what do you not do, but why do you do it and why do you not do it? That's the issue. Jesus gave a spiritual interpretation to the law, and he said your heart is the issue. From the outside looking in, you look great. Matthew 23, Jesus takes the Pharisees to task, and he says you look great on the outside, whitewashed tombs, Finely polished cups, but on the inside, you're you're full of dead men's bones and full of everything unclean. The heart is the issue. Righteousness is the issue, and you miss the mark. I'm your only hope. You see the difference in the message? It wasn't just to do this, do this, do this, don't do that, give this way, pray this many times. Jesus says the heart, the heart, the heart. Obedience must be accompanied with the right heart. We see Jesus' authority as the Lord as well. We see his authority as the teacher, but we see Jesus' authority, write that down, as the Lord. People address him, as we have already studied, as Lord, that is Jehovah, God. And not once did Jesus reject this title. Jesus did not reject the title when those came to him and said, Lord, Lord. Jesus saw himself as more than a teacher. Yes, Jesus' authority as is seen as, as he teaches, but Jesus' authority extends far beyond that of a teacher. Jesus has authority as the Lord. He wasn't just some great teacher giving advice which people might or might not heed to their own discretion. He was their master issuing commandments, expecting obedience, and warning them that their eternal welfare was at stake. Their eternal destiny was at stake. 
You see, the pupils of a Jewish rabbi would sit at that rabbi's feet and study the Old Testament scriptures. But Jesus' expectation is that those who sat under his teaching wouldn't just absorb the teaching, but they would be committed to him personally. Lord. Your Lord. We see Jesus' authority, write this down, as the Savior. It's clear from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus saw himself as the very way of salvation that he taught. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was able to declare who was blessed and who was not. Jesus could point to the narrow gate, which led to the hard way, which ended in in eternal life. And he could point to the broad way, which ended in destruction. He was clear on what kind of house would survive the storms of judgment and which would fall in destruction. And he said, I'm the way. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, he will be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. Jesus saw himself as the Savior, the Messiah. And he came on the authority as the Savior Messiah, such that he was able to declare who was in and who was out. And then lastly here, Jesus has the authority as the judge. The entire Sermon on the Mount is preached against the backdrop of the coming day of judgment. Jesus knew this reality and he wanted it to be central in the minds of of those, the, the minds and the lives of his hearers and his followers. Jesus minced no words. He gave no apology when he declared the conditions of salvation, when he warned of the causes of destruction, and when he called his hearers to follow and obey him. He minced no words. More striking than his emphasis on the certainty of future judgment was the fact that he himself claimed to be the judge. He himself claimed to be the judge. Three times in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus uses the personal pronouns, I and me. I and me. In verse 22, he said that he would be the one who would hear the evidence. Matthew writes, on that day, many will say to me, he says, Lord, Lord, I'll be the one who hears the evidence. There will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord. And then I, there's the personal pronoun again, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from, here it is again, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. You see, the accused will state their case before the Lord Jesus, and he will be the one to answer them. The destiny of every human being rests not in their knowledge or their use of Jesus' name, but rather the knowledge of him personally. Do you know him personally? Not just your use of his name, not just your theoretical knowledge of him, but do you know him personally? That will be the issue. Not service to Christ, but relationship to him will be the issue. It's clear that Jesus sets himself up as the central figure on the day of judgment. He is the judge. You see, the one who sat there on the mountainside to teach Beginning in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said on the mountain, many came and listened to him. 
Jesus was speaking primarily to his disciples, but there were a great multitude, great crowds that followed him that were hearing his words. And as Jesus sat there on the mountain to teach, he was teaching that he would be the very one that sat on the throne to judge the nations as they appear before him. We see Jesus' authority as the judge, the teacher, the Lord, the Savior, and the judge. Jesus taught with authority. Write this down, and we'll be much shorter in these next two points here, but Jesus taught with confidence and with certainty. Be on your outline there. Jesus taught with confidence and with certainty. I'll say just a thing or two about this because I think we can see this clearly from what we've already said about Jesus teaching with authority. I mean, Jesus said things like, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, what confidence is he speaking with there? What confidence is he bestowing for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? He is the one who has the ability to grant the kingdom of heaven, to give the kingdom of heaven, to bestow the kingdom of heaven. He speaks with confidence and certainty here. There's no doubt in Jesus' words. There's no question in Jesus' words. There's no supposition or possibility in Jesus' words. Jesus says, this is how it is. This will be how it happens. Jesus spoke with extraordinary confidence and certainty. And Jesus didn't say, if you build your house upon the sand, you might incur destruction. He spoke with certainty, you will be destroyed. He wasn't asking questions, he was making statements. See on your outline, Jesus taught about himself. He taught about himself. Perhaps what astonished Jesus' hearers the most is that he related all of his teaching to himself. Jesus related all of his teaching to himself. Jesus says that when we suffer for righteousness' sake, we're suffering for his sake. Jesus relates all of his teaching to himself. Turn the page back a couple of pages there and look at Matthew 5. Look at verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. And then he relates it to himself on my account. On my account. We see, too, the mystery of our union with Christ. I mean, Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. If we were to continue studying on through chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus claims to be the light of the world. But he says in our text that we, too, insofar as we are united to him, are also the light of the world. If you're there still in Matthew 5, Look at verses 13 through 16. He says, you're the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall it gain its saltiness again? Or how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then here we go. You are the light of the world insofar as you are united to me. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. Just like Jesus gives light to the world. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus teaches about the mystery of our union with him. He relates all of his teaching back to himself. Jesus tells us that he imparts his nature to his followers. Jesus also tells us that he came to fulfill the law. Look at verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, what should your ears do when you hear the word truly or truly, truly? They should perk up, right? I mean, what Jesus is saying is really, really, don't miss this, don't miss this. Get this, get this. Listen, listen. It's what he's saying when you you hear truly or truly, truly. Look at verse 18, chapter 5, verse 18. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then he goes on and he says, I'm the one who's going to accomplish it. It's all going to be made perfect in me. I am the fulfillment of it. I am the teleo. It's all going to be finished in me. I'm the completion of it. I will bring it all to its destined end. Jesus relates all of his teaching to himself. What is Jesus teaching here? What is Jesus teaching in the text? Well, he's claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah. He's claiming that he is the perfect one who can take away the sin of the world. No other human being had ever perfectly kept God's law. No one had had succeeded in observing it without flaw. But here Jesus steps on the scene in Matthew chapter 5 and said, not only am I going to keep it, but I'm going to fulfill it. Which, friends, that requires death, right? The law, failure to meet the exacting standards of the law, demanded death. And so in Jesus' words, I am coming to fulfill the law. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's coming to lay my life down for those who have broken it. Who have failed to meet its exacting standards. It'll be finished, completed in me. Jesus claimed that he was the one to whom the Old Testament prophets pointed. The one in which all God's promises are yes and amen. The whole doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, his person and his work, are all included in the Sermon on the Mount. You catch that? The whole doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, his person and his work, are all included in the Sermon on the Mount. It's what Jesus has been teaching for three chapters now. And so let's wrap it up, friends. Let's land the plane here. Why did Jesus preach the sermon? Why did Jesus preach this sermon? Well, I would submit to you that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount to once and forever condemn all trust in human endeavor and in natural ability in the matter of salvation. Jesus spoke these words to put to rest 
and to condemn all human endeavor, all striving, all trying, all natural ability when it comes to the matter of salvation. You can't do it. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's telling us that we've all fallen short of God's glory and no amount of striving will ever make us righteous or fit to stand in God's presence. Unless we're given a new nature, we can't even live out these commands. Unless God gives us a new heart, unless he redeems us, removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh and puts his spirit in us, we can't even live out these words. Now it's possible, the text doesn't tell us, but it's possible that some were converted upon hearing Jesus' words. Matthew doesn't write that, he doesn't record it. But it's possible that some, just like hearing the gospel from, from Peter in Acts, were cut to the core, cut to the quick upon hearing these words. That they weren't just astonished, amazed temporarily, and then that fizzled and they kind of all just headed back to their homes to, to, to get back on with the mundane and the day-to-day. But it's very possible that some were genuinely converted. That they came to know Christ savingly by faith alone. By grace alone, through the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Friends, let me ask you this question. Have you? Have you? Which road are you on? How are you trying to procure and secure righteousness? Is it by keeping the letter of the law? We know that's impossible, right? James tells us that we can't even bridle our own tongue. We can't even keep our own tongue in check. He tells us that if we try to keep the law, but yet we swerve or we misstep at one place, then we're guilty of breaking it all. Are we trying to earn something that can never be earned, to strive for something that can never be procured and secured on your own? What road are you on, friends? Are you on the broad road, the wide road that leads to destruction? Are you on the narrow road that leads to life? If you find it, will you? What kind of foundation are you trying to build on? Well, you'll demonstrate what foundation you're building on by your obedience. Do you hear these words and put them into practice? Not to gain your salvation, but as an evidence that you have genuinely been converted, that you are truly saved. If so, then you're like the wise man who's building a house upon the rock. If not, you need to know Again, friends, Jesus minced no words when he spoke about destruction. Jesus spoke, or minced no words when he spoke about hell. Jesus spoke about hell three times as often as he spoke about heaven. Not as a scare tactic, but as reality. As reality. One or two places will be found, my friends, when we stand toe-to-toe on that day. Will there be found in Adam, in our sin, or will be found in Christ? Not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, Paul tells us in Romans, but clothed in Christ's righteousness that comes by faith. Have you trusted Christ by faith? Do you know him by faith? Have you you surrendered, submitted, bowed before his lordship by faith? Where you've acknowledged you are God and I am not. You are master and I am subject. You are creator and I am creation. You are perfect, and I am marred by the fall. I need your righteousness. 
and you repent of your sin. Repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It just means to change your mind, to have a change of mind. It means you turn your back on one thing to turn your face on another. Have you turned your back on your sin and instead turned your face upon Christ? Not one hand in Adam and one hand in Christ, not one hand in the sin basket and one hand in Jesus' righteousness. Have you turned your back on your sin and put your hope, put your trust and put your faith in Christ? And has it been demonstrated or evidenced a new life which we would see taking place in obedience or the fruit of that taking place in obedience, a new love for God? A sensitivity, to, a sensitivity to sin, a hatred for sin, a growing, intense hatred for sin, a, a love for God's people, a broken heart for the lost. Are those things evident? If not, it's very possible, friends, that you're on the broad way. That you're on the broad way. And I would tell you, repent. Repent and believe. That's what Jesus said. Repent and believe, for the kingdom is at hand. Which road are you on? Which foundation are you building upon? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its immense practicality. We thank you for the fact that it searches us. We thank you that your word is like a double-edged sword which splits into our hearts and it divides joint and marrow. It reaches down to the thoughts and the intentions and the motives of man. Lord, we pray that you would search us and know us and see if there is any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, I pray that if there's a person here this morning that doesn't know you savingly, that you would draw them with your sweet grace, your wooing grace, Lord, that you would change their heart. We know that grace works preveniently. In other words, you have to work before. We pray that you would would work that grace in someone's heart and give them the ability to repent and have faith. God, we pray that you would grant that. And for those of us that are here this morning, we're so tempted to trust our own righteousness. We're so, we're so tempted to try to please you by what, we, by what we do, to try to earn your favor by what we do. Lord, remind us, just as Jesus labored in the Sermon on the Mount, that we please you by resting in what you've already done for us. Obedience doesn't gain us salvation, doesn't gain us heaven. Obedience is the fruit of salvation. It springs forth from a new heart. Lord, help us to be convinced and compelled by Christ's death for us that we would pursue obedience because of what he has done for us. Lord, we love you. We want to please you with our lives. We want to honor you. We want to magnify you. We want to glorify you, extol you, uh, rightly speak of you, rightly, glor- uh, rightly, uh, rightly view you, rightly hide you in our hearts and our minds, uh, Lord, that our, our lives would be a pleasing aroma to you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.